0: I think it's just enough to exist and to do good things in the smallest of ways. You know, that's unrecognized. It's so obvious that we're we're connected in so many different ways. Even the smallest gestures really have the potential to make really big differences.
1: Self-leadership can be lonely. It's hard to do the thing no one else wants to do, that no one else is willing to do. But you are not alone. There are others dancing through the fight and laughing as they lead. Let's find them, swap stories, and live through this together. Welcome to How I Live Through This. I'm your host, Ann Roach, and I'm really glad you're here. I am delighted and honored to be spending time with Bun Lai today most people know him as a chef extraordinaire he was the head chef at Maya's his family's acclaimed sustainable sushi restaurant the first sustainable sushi restaurant in the world and first ever sushi bar in New Haven Connecticut he's an environmentalist who normalized eating insects and invasive species an extensive writer winner of too many awards to name here. We'd spend the whole hour from the White House, where I think we need to talk about this at some point. You cook the entire dinner at the awards ceremony to the James Beard Foundation and everything in between. He's a farmer, diver, fisherman, and star of Little Fish, the New Yorker documentary. But I know Bun as a deeply kind, gracious, generous man who... I nearly killed in the sixth grade <laughs> when I stabbed him <laughs> with my lead pencil. You were really nice not to sue me. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> Bun. I'm really glad you're here. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. You're killing me here. <laughs> Thanks for having me
1: <laughs> We uh, We have so much to talk about. I want to hear about everything. Mm. Um, but I first want to yeah. ask you about school lunches. Because in season one of how I Live through this, I tell a story about the lunches that my mother made when we were at the foot school, which consisted of chutney Mm -hmm. sandwiches on German bread and half a head of iceberg lettuce. And I got so much feedback about about that. What do you remember (laughs) about school lunches?
0: I I don't remember. I don't remember your lunch because I was too focused on my lunch, but I I would... (laughs) Classify looking back at that lunch the way you described it as a weird lunch. You know, <laughs> shut me and uh, have it <laughs> a iceberg Um Yeah, I, I just don't think kids, most kids want to stand out in that way. And uh, I didn't really appreciate the lunches that I was getting until I was at school for decades. What um, lunches did you get? I spent- <laughs> My mom used to make me rice balls and she didn't do standard lunches. Like I want, I remember once she wrapped up a corn macabre in tinfoil or like a hot dog in tinfoil or made like Wonder Bread sandwiches with, it was delicious, with with fresh cucumber and scrambled eggs and mayonnaise, but it would kind of get soggy through (laughs) the bread I don't know. She had these. She created all these strange concoctions for lunch, and all I really wanted was like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, <laughs> sandwich. I just wanted to fit in. It wasn't that I liked peanut butter and jelly. I just wanted to fit in with everybody else. Yeah. But I, I would have expected something like half a iceberg lettuce from her, and <laughs> that was <laughs> that was the first, you know, dozen years of. Of my life, school life. Yeah, that's what I recall.
1: Yeah, that that's the uh, yeah wanting to fit in and have the. I asked for like roast beef on Wonder Bread, which my mother gave me for like three days, and it was so disgusting. I started throwing those yeah. out too, and we went back to the the weird school lunches.
0: Yeah, before foot, uh, I went to a place called Whitewood, which is like this hippie school, and in, in Brantford and I, I would give away half my lunches. There was a tray where you just get rid of the stuff that you don't like. And I remember it, uh, I got a corn in the cob and uh and I was just so annoyed that my mom would do that again. And I, so I put it on that tray and other kids would 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 swap stuff out of it. And I remember some kid grabbing it and opening it up and being like, whoa, corn on the cob, shike. <laughs> and I suddenly wanted that thing back.
1: Huh. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. I don't I remember do recall that. I don't remember ever having anything anybody wanted to take from my from my lunch. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. I don't know. My my lunches were tasty. They were just different. And then but now I realize that my mom fed us really well, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Today we eat, uh, you know, plant-based eating is really popular. It's been popular for decades, but more now than ever. And my mom raised us eating lots of fruits and vegetables and whole foods. You know, eventually we'd have a hot dog here and there or whatever, but she wasn't completely strict. But uh, I remember her saying to us and my brother and I, in high school that uh that we were such good athletes because she fed us like a deer would eat, so we were really fast and uh I couldn't disagree with her <laughs> yeah it's just, yeah, i really now now there's a, there's a lot of science backing up uh uh health and eating plant based whole foods.
1: Yeah. Tell me about that. You, I mean, there's so, there's so much information on you out there. I, I mean, I was just, when I was doing some research, it's just overwhelming how, how prolific (laughs) you are in talking about and writing about food and sustainability and what you're, what you're doing and how you got to where you are. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I I, I want to hear all of it, and I'm and I'm also really so interested in, um, and and we probably should give some context to the to the listener first. But I'm really so interested in your journey because so much of it is about taking risks and going against the grain for the better for lack of a better word <laughs> in your industry and yeah. your culture, and then and doing it yeah. again and again. Can you say a little bit more about what led you to the work that you're currently doing and how you got there?
0: Uh, I think it, uh, it starts with my parents really. And probably my grandparents too, which is that uh, I had role models, um, people who are older than me, who were very close to me, who uh, didn't take the easy route. So, mm-hmm. And didn't live the way that they were supposed to be living, so my my mom married a a man who was a foreigner um, against the wishes of her her parents and then raised uh, multicultural children uh, in a foreign country at the same time too and then started started a business with very, very little professional experience before doing it, so she kind of leapt right into it and then my father who brought us here was a clinician because he's got an MD and he's got a do- doctorates at the same time too but rather than doing clinical work he uh, chose to do research for the first uh, couple decades of my life because he really wanted to make a uh, uh, impact on humanity with whatever he could discover and in, in that space so i always knew that uh whatever i did i wanted it to be very very meaningful and uh although i didn't really know what that was going to eventually be and i stumbled upon the career that i ended up being in and then not particularly well loving it sometimes really being unhappy about being in it uh, a lot of the time. And then eventually it turning out to be kind of a, a calling for me and another way of uh, expressing my, my artistry. Hmm. So I ended up evolving within a space that I didn't intend to be in.
1: Hmm. I love that. I, I read somewhere that you, Uh, It's such a beautiful thing you said about your parents. My mother has an artist's soul and my father's a scientist who's never stopped discovering. I feel like I'm equal parts of each. There is something about the people that came before you and the people that will come after you that is very clear in your work now and how you speak about sustainability.
0: Uh, There's definitely a sense of the work that I do um, being not, not just my own. Um, you hear about people saying, you know, I, you know, I did it on my own. You know, pulled myself up by by my britches and stuff like that. I'm definitely not someone like that at all, because all around me, if I just look back, um, uh, and around me, there have been so many people who have lifted my family up, lifted me up. Uh, since childhood, who continue to impact me and who I am, and and in the work that I do, and that's so much of the pleasure of it uh, as mm-hmm. well, which is to to know that you're connected to um, all these different people uh, who had a hand in in making you uh, become who you are and and nudge you to take on, uh, things that, uh, you other wives might not have, you know, uh, one of the, the, the biggest influences in my life, and I'm sure thousands and thousands of other lives as well, um, is your, your father-in-law who, mm. uh, Frank Thryne, who was, uh, uh, our principal those years when, uh, we were at but yeah, and Uh, I did a movie called Blind Sushi. So it's not this last one, but uh, another one from 2018 that was the finalist for the James Beard Award. And it was inspired by that book, The K that we read. Did you read that book?
1: I don't remember reading that that book.
0: Okay. I think it was uh, for Mrs. Barber's uh, Mm. class. But it it was a um, book about a... Uh, A white teenager who gets shipwrecked on an island with an old uh, uh, black man. Um, He's prejudiced at first. He ends up going blind. Becomes friends with this old man who teaches him how to survive uh, on the island. But as he's going blind, ironically, he's able to see for the first time. He's able to see this man for who he is and not uh, for what he imagined this person to be. And so for Blind Sushi, the movie, it uh, it chronicles a few days with uh, me and a writer named Ryan Knighton, who is a travel writer who is blind. And when I first met Ryan, I told him about the K, and told him I'd like to create like a similar experience inspired by this book that I read and inspired by him. And that's how it came to be.
1: That was amazing, uh, Blind Sushi. You take him down. You both go diving, right? hmm
0: yeah, yeah, that was
1: amazing.
0: Which is what happens in that book as well. So the teenagers taught how to uh, dive after mm-hmm. he, uh, before he uh, loses his sight. And the old, old man eventually dies, but the teenager is able to survive mm-hmm. because of these skills that this old man had taught him, including being able to dive blind uh, for fish and lobster and shellfish.
1: Hmm. Can we go back for a minute? And you said something earlier about that eventually you were able to thrive and evolve in the restaurant business. I'm curious if you... Remember a moment or have a story about a, a time where you where you were able you a, were able to see that possibility.
0: Um, nothing. There wasn't like really a a eureka moment. So um, I knew I knew that I was on the right path, though I wasn't enjoying it, hmm. and because. I was there to help my mother out, so I wasn't there to learn sushi. I wasn't there to learn how to cook. I wasn't there to get into the restaurant business. I was just there to help my mom, uh, who was a single mother, who by and large raised us and who had sacrificed so much for us, and now she needed help. So I really wanted to uh, help her while uh, she and the restaurant were having a hard time. And As challenging as it was, as stressful as it was to go on that journey, I never doubted uh, that I was on the right path, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know where that path was going. And in retrospect, there's something to be said about doing something that you really believe in that's not all about just making yourself happy. And somehow, um over the years, as I marched on and worked really, really hard at just surviving, I ended up getting pretty good at at the restaurant business at at uh, at cooking. But it again, wasn't what I set out to do. It was more. Uh, about surviving and then surviving became uh, curiosity. Also, there was a little bit of ego involved as well too, because I really did want to get as good as possible or as knowledgeable as possible in, in cooking just for pragmatic, for pragmatic reasons as well because it was important to be able to do that to run a restaurant. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, and then, Kind of tangentially, I ended up learning, having some really good experiences, like being so bad at something for so long, but caring so deeply about it was a very good experience to have, uh, as far as building character for, uh, for a young adult. Um, that, it wasn't uh, given to me, that I didn't go to culinary school or get to train at the best restaurants in the world you know, um, that I kind of fell into it and then was so bad at it for so long is one part of the experience that uh, I'm so grateful to have had.
1: Yeah. And what strikes me so much about what you're saying, Bun, is how grounded in love that is. I, I hear so many people, so many of my own clients in coaching come to me having been very successful at something but not being grounded in purpose. And it sounds like your journey started in purpose, which was the love of your mother and wanting to help her. And the success was built around that or came second to that.
0: Yeah. And uh, I'm lucky because um, we had a purpose-centered education. Mm-hmm. and uh so much of the literature that we read was deeply rooted in all sorts of different existential themes um um so everything that i wanted to do with my life uh since i was a kid uh was was grounded in in meaning mm-hmm. and so as i uh got older, I couldn't just work for the sake of just working, I really wanted to do something that made a difference. So helping my mom was uh, the, was the doorway to that. And then sticking with it, and going through the difficulties is what allowed me to experience even more, more meaning um, in unexpected ways. When I I was a little kid, I knew that I was uh, an artist. You know, uh, that. Was, so, you know, there's a lot of little kids who know that they're gay, for example, uh, as young as they can remember. Well, mm-hmm. I knew that I was an artist as young as I can remember. But then I became disillusioned with art at the end of high school. And then I just stopped doing it altogether because I didn't know mature artists and didn't think that. I, I felt that art was really selfish in the way that I was doing it. Um, and I, w- I wanted to do something much more meaningful with my life. And through my cooking and and, and working at Mia's, I was able to uh, rediscover uh, art. The only difference was that the medium had changed. And not only that, at, at Mia's, now that I was an adult and now immersed in the Yale community, um, I ended up knowing artists from writers and people in theater, um, to visual artists, to architects, all sorts of different artists who are now mature artists. So I was able to get this tremendous education and a very diverse education from different people who ended up, uh, influencing, uh, my food art. Wow.
1: That's extraordinary. I had never thought about it that way. That's amazing. Yeah. So
0: I kind of feel like I've had like multiple doctorates at this point Um, because when my dad went to Cambridge, he said one, you know, my dad's in his 80s, so it's a long time ago, but he said the experience, one of the experiences that he enjoyed the most was the weekly teas at their college because they would never seat, sit you next to someone of your own discipline so you know he's in medicine so they would put him next to maybe a historian and and you know an uh, anthropologist, for example so then you'd have like this cross-semination of experiences and ideas and that's what mia's uh became and since mia's was such a quirky restaurant uh because of my mother and because of myself and really different from other conventional sushi restaurants. Either you loved us or, you, or or you really disliked us. So we ended up attracting um people who were open minded enough to love me as but these open minded people were often the most creative people too. And then they ended up becoming my friends. And again uh influencing me and in, and who i am and and the work that I do
1: hmm. that's so extraordinary bun i uh, one of the things that I am talking about in this season is how do you how does a person navigate the complexity of working within an industry to change it that oftentimes the food industry um thinking about other people that i've interviewed for this season law enforcement yeah. education like these systems and and organizations and industries are so big and so entrenched and they're hard to change they're so it's so easy to just say this is the way it's always been or you have to do it this way but i'm hearing you say that that area of gray is actually filled with creativity and artistry and multi dimensional, um, and that that's the dance for you in there. It brings out something that really speaks to you.
0: Um, yeah. And uh, that gray space is very, very, very important because we tend to, as human beings, um, we like the black and the white because it's easily. It's easily understood, it's easily visually understood. It's it's all the colors in between uh, that can be confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think especially today in a world where people can be very divisive, and people can approach each other from very strong points of opinion, mm-hmm. that the gray zones are really, really important. Uh, that it's all right, To be, it's all right to disagree or not understand each other. And not only that, we can be friends and not agree. Yeah. And I think I was able to kind of think that way because I've had such, I've been exposed to so many different types of people. And also because I'm multicultural myself Um, Chinese, Japanese. I grew up over here, grew up. you know, in in the Yale community, in these Yale apartments to I I was lucky enough to to see that a lot of these things that we assume uh, to be normal uh, in our own lives aren't necessarily normal to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I grew up uh, feeling often abnormal, especially when I first came to this country, you know, when, uh, being a foreigner and having foreign parents and and that sort of thing. But that whole experience has been very, very useful, I think, to me uh, today in what we're dealing with as a world when it comes down to uh, division uh, that exists. Yeah. So for me, the food that I, I create is inspired by um, human diversity, At the same time, I create it with the intention uh, of bringing people together as well. And people who are very, very different from one another.
1: That's beautiful. I'd love to hear more about what that looks like currently for you. I, I was really struck in looking at your how you talk about sustainability uh, and there's just such a deep sense of love. I I hope that that doesn't make you uncomfortable, but I, there is such a deep mm-hmm. sense of love that I get from your approach to everything. The, like you were saying, the complexity of loving people, even though they are destroying the planet. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. can you say a little bit more about what your food looks like now what you are what you are working towards in in food now
0: well when it comes down to invasive species for example i'll just give you an example of my my approach it's easy to so i started working on invasive species as, as food i'm dating myself uh, around 2001 so it's already been two decades. So people are talking about eating invasives. It's it's kind of a popular part. The media is really kind of latched on to it. So there's all sorts of people around cooking up invasive species. But invasive species, it's a it's a subject matter that's very, very complicated. It's not as it's not as simple as, hey, uh, we should go out and eat invasive species because they're destructive of the environment, so they're bad. First of all, invasive species are all living things so they're they're not inherently bad at all they're just trying to survive and thrive just like we are so they have to be respected as living organisms um not only that um for example an invasive species for example i'm thinking about like a a a fruit and uh Hawaii, I think it might be the, uh, a type of guava that was brought in. So the government of Hawaii wants to get rid of it. But at the same time, uh, farmers are up in arms about it because this guava has been there for, for generations at this point. So they consider it um, part of their heritage at this point. Um, so who's right and who's wrong? Well, I don't think anyone's right or wrong but it, it is very, very complicated. And then um, I'm going to kind of go on a tangent. Um, invasive species, they're also called alien species. Well, we use the word alien, and we also see as invasive as well in the way that we treat them as, you know, people, uh, immigrants on the border, for example. Right. So you can take a topic and you can look at it in so many different ways. And it's not necessarily going to give you black or white answers, but it will give you many, many different perspectives if you're willing to put the work in. And all sorts of different possibilities as far as different solutions eventually, too. But my work in invasive species and eating invasive species is, is very, very complicated. It's It's not about just going out and, and 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 catching and eating invasives now, it's a very complicated situation for me but there are species that i consider invasive for example that conservation biologists uh, probably would not for example uh, domesticated animals mm. you know like like the cow for example because it fits every description of an invasive species yeah, it's brought over by human beings uh it's uh is a foreign invader and it's destructive in the environment so that's the kind of work that I'm uh, doing right now uh, as far as invasive species and um, it goes in a a lot of different directions so I've got piles and piles of papers all over the place uh, with all these different ideas I'm trying to kind of organize and make sense of and then eventually that becomes a recipe that tells these stories or a a number of recipes uh, that that help tell these stories. And that is food is a very, very powerful thing because food is one of the most intimate ways, if not the most intimate way that you can bring the world into yourself and experience it in a very personal and subjective way. So I can take all sorts of different ideas and, and literally put it on a platter and have people feel those ideas and, and feel these experiences that I'd like them to feel. It's no different than how music uh, or a movie or a, or a great idea, poetry, uh, can move people. Food can do the same sort of thing.
1: Love that storytelling through food. I love that.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Do you want to talk a little bit about what you have been doing since Maya closed?
0: I've been spending my time focusing on becoming wiser, becoming deeper, becoming more grounded, becoming healthier, living in a way that's in line with um, everything that I know as far as living in a way that's healthy not only for my body but for the people around me and and for the planet too so before I stopped doing me as I had all these ideas but I wasn't so you know I taught 60 something classes in nutrition to, um, low income, pre-diabetic women of color. But meanwhile, while I'm teaching people how to eat well and doing lectures on nutrition, you know, I've spoken at Harvard school, of public health and all that sort of stuff. I'm not being healthy myself, I'm like living this super highly um, stressful life. I'm traveling and I'm doing a zillion different things. Plus, I'm running a restaurant too. Plus, my new menu is coming out. Plus, I'm working on new ideas over here. Oh, and plus, I'm going to hang out with my friends late at night who inspire me and drink a half a dozen beers a night. Yeah. Oh, plus, I'm going to go smoke some cigarettes too. You know, and. And that sort of thing. So I finally had to put a break on it. And that's what it really boiled down to. And that's why I closed Mia's. Mia's was doing really well. But my work that was about sustainability was, has, was being done in a way that wasn't sustainable for my life. So over the last year, I've just kind of been rewiring myself. And giving myself the time to really think about how to do it right and how to maximize the the next few decades in my life,
1: yeah, I appreciate that story because I think that's a common a common one. I mean, you've had extraordinary success, and not not everybody has had that, but that sense of just going so hard. Even when the intention is good, even when the purpose is there, but just going so hard that and so fast that you're not you're not taking care of yourself
0: mm-hmm.
1: and spreading that message for everyone else, um, but not but not for yourself.
0: And I think you see that a lot with caretakers, you know, or uh, professional caretakers of people who have the personality of a caretaker. So I, I love taking care of the people around myself, but in the end it, it left me as the last person to be taken care of. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I had to kind of look at myself and be like, Hey, you know, I got to take care of this kid. You know, I love this kid too. So, and uh, it's, it's been, it hasn't been, it hasn't been an easy, it's not been an easy transition. Um, because you really have to rewire yourself. Um, and that has to do with like in your brain at the same time too. Mm -hmm. Uh, but moving into 2022, um, I feel so transformed, but it was after a lot of effort and, a lot of effort and really struggling to harness myself. So my gut feeling is that I'm going to end up being ironically more productive than I, hmm. than I've been on doing it this way, not sprinting. And it's also very, this, this new way or ways of doing things is, is a lot of fun for me because it's, it's all about questioning what I've been used to or whatever, or what I've told myself is, is normal hmm. and then reinventing myself.
1: Much like you did with your food.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in, in the end, you know, you are your own greatest artwork.
1: That's so good. What do you, what do you hope for in the, for the future?
0: I think the most important thing that I wish for is, is, is health. And that I think has to do with me becoming older because when I'm younger, when I was younger, you just take it for granted. But at this point, my mother, you know, had a stroke a decade ago that she's doing well. You know, my parents are getting older, you know, all of us are getting older. And as a chef, I, I notice in particular how people are suffering because of, of food that's not healthy that they're eating. You know, so it's really become a, a passion of mine to be able to do work that helps the people around me, immediately around me. And then way beyond, um, become more healthful. And one of the most powerful tools of being able to do that is through food. Um, the, the biggest pandemic isn't COVID. It's, it's, it's the pandemic of diet-related diseases. You know, everything, most of the diseases that we're dealing with today, that's not infections, is related to what we put in our mouths. And even COVID wouldn't be as bad if, if we didn't have so many people who are ill from uh, these chronic diseases. So I, I've got a lot, to, uh, a, a lot to work with and a lot to work on, just in that space and, and the environmental space alone, um, to constantly challenge me.
1: Yeah. That's really powerful. I really appreciate how you tie all of it together and that it isn't just, I mean, it isn't just about the food and it isn't just about people and it isn't just about the plants, but the whole, the part is the whole. All of it needs to work together. Similarly to how you're talking about yourself and, and learning how to slow down and be still
0: yeah uh, and um all of us matter, yeah you know you you just don't know when we do something good who it's going to end up eventually uh, touching, yeah, you know, just kind of like a ripple, so I think it's just I think it's just enough to exist and to do good things in the smallest of ways. You know that's unrecognized. It's so obvious that we're we're connected in so many different ways. even the smallest gestures really have, have the potential to make really big differences. You know, so I guess it's like the butterfly effect. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. that's beautiful. Spot and spot on
0: mm because I think a lot of people don't feel like they're powerful enough or important enough or noticed enough, especially today in this world. Of look at me in social media. I don't have enough followers. You know, people don't like me enough. You know, no one's liking what I'm saying on Facebook or whatever, but each of us are way more powerful than we know that we are. You know, especially when you do, when you focus on what's really important, which is truly meaningful and purposeful and not just about yourself. That
1: is, I can't think of a truer statement.
0: Mm, me either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you have no idea where that's going to go. And it's, that's not the point. Well, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time and talking to me. And there's so much about your work and thoughts on, on food. And uh, we barely scratched the surface, but I love actually talking about what's underneath all of that and what's, what's happening really for you underneath all of that. So I appreciate you coming so openly and Vulnerably and taking the time to talk to me.
0: Well, thank you for having me. And um, I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. You know, this is what I live for. So thank you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you when you're on this side of the country again.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Cook together. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. I would love that. (laughs) Thank you, Bun.
0: All right. Talk soon.
1: The word philanthropy is derived from the Greek word philos, which means loving, and anthropos, meaning human. So philanthropy is, at its core, loving humans. Love is the common thread running through all of my interviews this season. Every one of my guests loved the community they stood in enough to want more for it. They took steps, small at first, grounded in love and belief in their community, which yielded unexpected and beautiful outcomes for themselves and others. When looking at philanthropy through the lens of love, every action is an important action, and everyone can lead from where they stand. What community do you love? You may already be a philanthropist. Do you give your time or share your talents? or make connections or give that extra money because you love and believe in your community, that's the definition of philanthropy. So where do you see the opportunity to be more intentional, go one step further than you already do? If you need some direction, here are two organizations featured in this season that touched my heart deeply. Please consider donating to help their important and love-filled work continue. Old School Cafe at oldschoolcafe.com. dot com. That's O L D S K O O L C A F E dot com. And New England Blacks in Philanthropy at nebip dot org. That's nebip dot org. Thanks so much.